Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Well, hello to everybody, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, after finishing our recent series through the New Testament epistles of John, we took a couple of weeks off, but now it's time to get back to Bible study, and I'm excited to announce that our new series is going to be through the Gospel of Mark. I love to study the Gospels and to consider the life and ministry of Jesus. The Gospels tell us how, when, and why Jesus came. Now, in this first message, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 1, but before we go there, I'd like us to consider some background information. The Gospels give us, well, the biography of Jesus, his birth, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. The Gospels make up about 46% or almost one half of the New Testament. The Gospels were placed at the beginning of the New Testament, not because they're first in chronological order of the writings, but rather first in logical order. It's worth noting that while the ministry of Jesus lasted, what, three to three and a half years, the Gospels combined only touch on about 50 days of that ministry, and a large chunk of that focuses in on his final week, the final week of Jesus before he died. We call that Passion Week, beginning with Palm Sunday and going through to Resurrection Sunday. Now, a very common question that people have is the question of why we have four Gospels. The four Gospels together give us a much more comprehensive view of life, of Christ's life and ministry. In my library, for example, I have multiple biographies on the life of Abraham Lincoln, and altogether they give me a more comprehensive overview of Lincoln's life. Well, in the same way, all four Gospels contain many of the same major events, but then each Gospel adds unique details not found in the other three Gospels. As a result, you and I have a more complete picture and presentation of Jesus. For example, consider this. Only Matthew tells us about the visit of the Magi after Jesus was born. Only Mark tells us that Jesus was a carpenter. Only Luke describes the salvation of a dying thief on the cross, and only John tells us about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So while the four Gospels tell a lot of the same information, they give us those unique pieces of information that the others don't. And at the same time, they don't contradict each other, they complement each other, again, giving us a much more comprehensive picture. To further illustrate this, let's consider three different areas of comparisons for the four Gospels. For example, how is Jesus presented? Well, in Matthew, he's the king. Uh, In Mark, he's the servant. In Luke, he's the son of man or a man. And in John's Gospel, he's the son of God. And then consider the Gospel audiences. Matthew was writing to the Jews Mark was writing to the Romans, Luke was writing to the Greeks, and John was really writing to the world in general. And then the gospel emphasis. In Matthew, it's on Christ's sermons. 
In Mark, it's on his miracles. In Luke, it's his parables. And in John, it's his doctrines. Uh, An important fact about the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three, is that they're known as the synoptic Gospels. The Greek word synoptikos means to see together or to share a common viewpoint. So these first three Gospels contain a lot of the same biographical information about Jesus from their own unique perspective. Those synoptic Gospels were all written within about mm, 10 years or so of each other. Then towards the end of the first century, the last living apostle of Jesus, John, we just studied his epistles, but now we're talking about his gospel. He was inspired by God to write that fourth gospel in about AD 85. That's more than 50 years after Christ ascended back to heaven and at least 25 years after the first three gospels were written. Those factors and others made John's gospel more unique and less like the first three. So let's talk about what makes Mark's gospel unique from the others. Number one, it's probably the first gospel that was written. And while we don't know the exact date of that, scholars believe it was the first of the four gospels to be written, probably in the mid-50s of the first century. Uh, Secondly, it's the shortest of the four gospels. Matthew has 28 chapters. Luke has 24, John has 21, Mark only has 16 chapters. In fact, you can read the Gospel of Mark in one to two hours, depending on how fast you read. Number three, and one thing I think we appreciate about Mark's Gospel is it's very fast moving. Several of the chapters begin with the word and, and as Mark barely pauses to take a breath and connects his sentences together, The word immediately is used over 40 times, making it read like a breaking news report. For this reason, Mark is the perfect gospel for busy people, and I'm entitling this series, Good News for Busy People. Fourthly, Mark contains the fewest of Christ's teachings. Mark's gospel's emphasis is much more about what Jesus did rather than what Jesus said or taught. The reason for this, again, is Mark's target audience, the Romans, who valued action over words. Mark only records two of Jesus' sermons, but 18 of his miracles. And fifthly, Mark was not written by one of the 12 disciples. Matthew and John were part of the 12 disciples, but the other two gospel writers, Mark and Luke, were not. Now, many of the church leaders in the late Uh, first century and early second century were agreed that Mark received his information from Peter. In 1 Peter 5.13, he calls Mark, my son, he's talking spiritually, indicating that Peter helped bring Mark to saving faith. His full name was John Mark, John being his Hebrew name and Mark his Roman name. He was the younger cousin of Barnabas and the son of Mary, whose home served as a meeting place for believers. Some have suggested their house was where Jesus and the disciples ate the Last Supper and where the Holy Spirit fell upon them in Acts chapter 2 at the birth of the church. Since Mark lived in Jerusalem, he undoubtedly witnessed some or perhaps several of the gospel events. Mark probably knew the disciples personally from their visits to his home. Now, many of us are familiar with how Paul and Barnabas chose young John Mark to go with them on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 12. 
Many of us also know that partway through that journey, Mark bailed on the team and returned home. We're not given the reason for that spiritual failure, and possibilities include that he was young, so perhaps like immaturity, the hardship of the journey. Perhaps he had different expectations, or there was homesickness, homesickness, or perhaps he had difficulty serving under Paul's authority. It's also possible that Mark, a Jew, was not happy about ministering to Gentiles. And if that was the case, then ironically, God chose Mark to write his gospel to Gentiles, to the Romans. Later on, when Paul and Barnabas were preparing for their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them again and give him a second chance. But Paul was adamantly opposed to it, and it led to a very heated disagreement and even falling out between Paul and Barnabas. So Paul went his way on a one missionary journey, taking a disciple named Silas, and Barnabas went a different direction, taking his younger cousin Mark with him. Now, years later in ministry, Paul spoke favorably of both Barnabas and Mark in his letters, and clearly they had patched things up, which is great. In fact, in 2 Timothy 4, in his final letter, Paul asked Timothy to bring Mark with him to Rome, and he describes Mark as being useful for ministry. Hey, wouldn't it be interesting to know that sometime during those years between Paul's disappointment and his praise of Mark that someone came and handed Paul a scroll? And Paul might have asked, what's this? To which the person might have said, it's a gospel description of Christ's ministry, death, and resurrection, and it was written by John Mark. Then after reading through it, Paul might have responded with a smile and said, well, well, my old friend Barnabas was right about Mark after all. So coming back to Peter's influence in Mark's life, we see a definite connection Peter himself had experienced a major failure when he denied Jesus three times on the eve of the crucifixion. Peter wept, he repented, and the Lord restored him to useful ministry. Mark's failure then may have inspired Peter to take him under his wing and to disciple him. I appreciate what one pastor wrote about failure and our identity in Christ. Please listen to what he wrote, and I quote, You are not defined by your worst moments. You are not defined by your greatest accomplishments. You are not defined by what others think of you or by what you think about yourself. You are not defined by what you do or fail to do. You are defined by what God has done for you. And to all of that, I say amen. Self-reliant people are fond of saying things like, failure is not an option, but the fact is failure is a reality. We've all had failure in our lives. And if you've had a major spiritual failure in your life, not only will God forgive you, he can still use you just like John Mark and just like Simon Peter. The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. When I was a kid, we used to have this expression, no take backs. So if I gave my friend a baseball, for example, and then tried to ask him to give it back, he would say to me, no take backs. Well, I've got great news for you. There's no take backs with God. When he gives you his grace, his mercy, and his love, he never takes it back. No matter how badly Israel behaved, he never took back his promise of them being his chosen people. And no matter how badly we mess up spiritually, he never takes back his promise of forgiveness and salvation. 
So coming back to Mark and to this gospel, Mark got his firsthand information from Peter, and with Peter's input, this gospel was readily accepted as being inspired. So please keep this in mind as we make our way through the second gospel that we're going to hear the voices not only of John Mark, but of Simon Peter as well. And so let's go ahead and begin reading our first 11 verses together. We read here, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it was written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission or forgiveness of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those who came from Jerusalem went out to him, and they were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loosen. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and uh, he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, first off, notice that there's no reference to the author. Now in the epistles, with the exception of Hebrews, the writers always identify themselves, but not in the gospels. Even so, there's no serious debate about who wrote any of the four gospels, including Mark. Mark's authorship was verified by first and second century writers and spiritual leaders like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Eusebius, and others. Perhaps you also noticed as we were reading that Mark begins his gospel without any genealogies or references to the birth of Jesus, or really any information about the life of Jesus prior to his ministry that he began at the age of 30. How do we know he began at the age of 30? Well, Scripture tells us, Luke 3.23. Once again, this is why it's so helpful to know the background of each of the gospels, and for that matter, all the books of the Bible. Because Mark was writing to Gentiles, to the Romans, they were not interested in the birth or the childhood of Jesus. They didn't care about genealogies or Jewish customs. The Romans were very pragmatic and mainly interested in actions. And so Mark cut to the chase and went right to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and his baptism at the Jordan River. At the same time, Mark's goal was to share the gospel with his readers, and so he begins with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel, as most of you know, simply means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he is the Son of God who came into the world to die for our sins. It's the good news that our sins can be forgiven and that we can become part of God's family, and one day we will go to heaven to live with Jesus. The gospel is still good news, and it's never been more urgent. Now, here's another interesting connection to the background of Mark's gospel. In verse 1, the word Mark uses for gospel, uh, eugelion, was a Roman word used to announce that a new emperor had ascended the throne. It was the Roman word for good news, the arrival of a new emperor. So Mark 
writing to a Roman audience, takes that same word and uses it to announce the good news about the arrival of a king, the Savior and God's Son, who is Jesus. Mark announces the arrival of Jesus, who has left his throne in heaven, and Mark turns these first 11 verses into a courtroom to prove that Jesus is God. Over the years, I've spent some time in courtrooms um, for all the right reasons, as a witness to a murder, for jury selections, and I've attended a few trials for various reasons. I've also read some great John Grisham courtroom novels, if that helps. In court cases, there are different types of witnesses. The responsibility of a witness is to provide evidence or information that pertains to the trial. So first off, there's the eyewitness, and this person testifies to what they saw or heard. There's also the expert witness, someone who has a specialized knowledge that allows them to analyze the evidence and then provide the court and the jury with an expert opinion. An example of this might be a medical expert. In some cases, there's also the hearsay witness. This person testifies to what someone else has said. So, for example, someone might be serving a sentence and in jail, and they're called to testify about a, a defendant who told them in prison that they had committed a crime. Finally, there might be a reputation witness, someone who testifies to the reputation and character of another person. Well, here now in these first 11 verses, Mark uses a courtroom approach, bringing in several different types of witnesses to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. The title of this first message is, Call Your Next Witness. That's a common phrase spoken by judges in courtrooms. Mark presents us with a list of five witnesses, and we begin here in verse 1, if you're taking notes, with the first witness, Mark. Right out of the gate, Mark boldly declares that Jesus is the Son of God. As I mentioned earlier, since Mark lived in Jerusalem with his mother, Mary, it's very likely that he saw and heard Jesus on the Lord's many visits to the city. After all, when Jesus and his disciples arrived in Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and Mark wouldn't have missed it. And as I've shared with you, some believe that the Last Supper may have been held there at their home. Either way, we're confident that Mark saw and heard Jesus. There's a very interesting story in Mark chapter 14 that's only recorded in Mark's gospel, after Jesus and the disciples left the Last Supper and walked over to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, we read in Mark 14 that a certain young man followed Jesus, having a linen cloth around his naked body. And when the men laid hands on him, he left the linen cloth behind and fled away naked. How's that for a gospel story? Most commentators then are agreed that that young man who fled away naked was none other than young Mark himself. I guess it was the first century version of a selfie. <laughs> Once again, only Mark mentions that incident in his gospel, indicating that it was him. And so putting our information together, it all makes sense. If the Last Supper did take place at that home, the home of Mary and Mark, then Mark would have been there in the house. And when Jesus and the boys left for Gethsemane, Mark would have been the young man who followed them. So all this to say that Mark himself was a qualified witness to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. Then in verses 2 and 3, Mark calls in his second witness, the prophets. In verse 2, Mark is quoting the prophets about Jesus. He's referencing Malachi and Isaiah. 
In verse 2, he quotes Malachi 3.1, and in verse 3, Mark quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. Those references were both to John the Baptist coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. But ultimately, those prophets were testifying to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. In ancient times, before a monarch would visit another country, royal messengers were sent ahead to prepare the way and to make all the arrangements. This might include repairing the roads so that the king's travels would be smooth. With that in mind, Malachi's prophecy was to prepare the way, and Isaiah's prophecy was to make the path straight. Although those statements were actually spiritual in nature for the people to prepare their hearts for the king's arrival, the king of kings. Well, that leads us right into verses 4 to 8, as Mark calls his third witness, John the Baptist. John was baptizing in the wilderness, and he was preaching a message of repentance. John's baptism was not the same water baptism that you and I observe as believers today. And the reason we know that's quite simple. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet and died for our sins. Today, when believers are water baptized, as all believers should be, we're baptized as a public proclamation of our faith in Jesus for salvation. So having been saved by grace through faith, our public baptism declares our new life in Christ. But John's baptism was different because Jesus was just beginning his ministry and he wouldn't go to the cross for another three years. So John's message was meant to produce conviction and repentance, and then his baptism was meant to prepare people to meet and trust Christ. So their baptism indicated their change of heart, and it was to prepare them for the coming Messiah's arrival and his cleansing of their sins. In verse 6, we quickly see that John was definitely not trying to make a fashion statement. He's dressed in a garment made of camel's hair. Oh, that has to be rough on the skin. And it's all held together by a leather belt. And his eating habits also give new meaning to the phrase dining out. He literally ate out for every meal, and the menu consisted of insects, grasshoppers, and bees' honey. Now, I've eaten some interesting items over the years. I'm not sure why. I guess I just wanted to try them once. But I've had goat, frog legs, escargot, rattlesnake, and alligator tail. For real. And for the record, rattlesnake and escargot do not taste like chicken. It's more of a texture like calamari, which, by the way, is squid. But something I've never tried and I actually don't plan on trying is locust rolls. Wild honey is fine. In all seriousness, John's appearance and eating habits remind us that God often doesn't choose the kind of men and women that society would choose. God chooses the weak and foolish people of the world to confound the wise and those who have a high opinion of themselves. The first century world would have definitely selected a different type of person than John to announce the arrival of a king. And yet, the king himself, Jesus, tells us that John was the greatest of the prophets. But even then, his greatness was in the fact that he was the messenger who was preparing the way for the Messiah. In verses 7 to 8, John scores an A-plus on his ministry exam. He makes it abundantly clear that it's not about him, it was all about Jesus. John testifies, and I love this, that he wasn't even worthy to stoop down and fasten the sandal strap of Jesus. This is a good spot to pause and remind ourselves that as believers, we're all called to be witnesses and to introduce Jesus to others. 
And as we do that, like John, let's make sure it's all about Jesus and the cross and not about us. Then in verses 9 and 10, we read that Jesus came out to the wilderness where John was at the Jordan River, and he had John baptize him. This brings up a good question. Why would Jesus need to be baptized since he was sinless and had nothing to repent of? In Mark's gospel, John specifically says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me? Well, more high marks for John as he immediately recognized his own sin. Even though John had been handpicked by God to baptize and introduce the Messiah, he still saw himself as an unworthy sinner. But back to the question of why Jesus was baptized. Well, for one thing, Jesus was identifying with us as sinners. Clearly, he had no sin, but he identified himself with us in baptism at the beginning of his ministry, and then he bore our sins on the cross at the end of his ministry. Secondly, Jesus was affirming the ministry of John. John was preparing the way for Messiah, and Jesus, in essence, was saying, I'm Jesus, and I approve this message. Thirdly, Jesus left us his example. Today as believers, there's two important spiritual observances that we keep, the command to be water baptized, and then our regular times of communion. In both cases, Jesus commanded them and he personally participated in them. And by doing so, he left us his example. Well, in verse 10, Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, the heavens parted and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Since Jesus was beginning his ministry, this clearly symbolized Jesus being empowered from heaven for the earthly ministry that lay ahead of him. So John calls his fourth witness the Holy Spirit. If you were with us in our recent series of studies in the epistles of John, then you'll recall how John wrote in 1 John 1, 5, or excuse me, in 1 John chapter 5, that three bear witness of Jesus in heaven and on earth, and those witnesses include the Holy Spirit. Well, in verse 11, Mark calls in his fifth witness, the Father. As Jesus is baptized, the voice of the Father from heaven declares, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So this first section opens up in verse 1 with a declaration that Jesus is the Son and closes in verse 11 with the same declaration of him being God's Son. And the case is clearly presented on the testimony of no less than five witnesses. Earlier, I spoke about the different types of witnesses that can be summoned into a courtroom. They include the eyewitness, the expert witness, the hearsay witness, uh, and the reputation witness. In these verses, Mark is the hearsay witness. Now, I believe he was an eyewitness of Jesus at various times, for, uh, for sure, but he also received reliable information from his friend Simon Peter, in order to write this gospel account. So that makes him more of like a hearsay witness. The prophets then were the expert witnesses. They were qualified by God to expertly testify and prophesy about Jesus in their Old Testament writings. John the Baptist then was clearly our eyewitness. He saw Jesus and heard Jesus speak. He interacted with him and baptized him. This gives us the Holy Spirit and the Father as our reputation witnesses. They bore witness that this was Jesus, the beloved Son. May God empower us then to be witnesses today. And speaking of being a witness, as we close up this message, let me ask you a couple of questions. 
As a believer in Jesus Christ, have you been water baptized? All believers upon their conversion are commanded to be baptized as a public testimony of our salvation. There's no good reason to postpone water baptism as a Christian, and it should be done as soon as possible following your salvation by faith. So if you need to be water baptized, I strongly encourage you to do so through your local church where you attend. Secondly, as a witness for Jesus Christ, when was the last time you were empowered by the Holy Spirit? Paul exhorts us to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. To be filled literally means to be controlled. And Paul's wording, be filled, literally describes a continuous filling or empowering. So we need to come to God daily, asking him to empower us by the Holy Spirit. We need that power to live the victorious Christian life and to be bold witnesses for Jesus. And if we are ever living in a day when we need to be bold for Jesus, that day is now. Well, thanks again for tuning in to the podcast. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.